This is Eric Rutan of Cannibal Corpse. You are listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast with Andrew McKay-Smith. G'day, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning in. I appreciate it. This is a conversation for the ages featuring one of Extreme Metal's originals, Michael Amott from Arch Enemy, Carcass and Spiritual Beggars. The catalyst for the conversation is an Australian tour from Arch Enemy, but I won't read out the dates because I've got bugger all listeners in my home country. If you live here, please just go to Gig Guides. The venues and the dates are easily found. The important thing is throughout this chat here, we discuss carcass. We dive deep. We go way back in time. Necroticism, heart work. We talk all about those albums. We discuss why he left carcass. What it was like working with Bill Bill Steer, one of the greatest extreme metal guitarists ever. I mean, these two together. Fair dinkum. How good are they? Candlemas. I bet you didn't know that he played guitar on a Candlemas album, but he did. His memories of Gigantura across Australia in 2006. Frederick Nordstrom, the Uber producer, the Gothenburg Uber producer from the 90s and early 2000s. So many topics we cover here. Michael's a fantastic fella. If I had more time, because it sounded like Michael had more time to give me, I would have taken it, but the conversation took place at 4.30pm. Now I've got two kids, you see, and I could hear them running amok with their cousin in the background, and I thought I'd better get back out to them. But uh, needless to say, this is still a conversation that is well worth your while, particularly if you don't understand or aren't aware of Michael's contribution to extreme metal. It's all here throughout this chat. I don't have a song to share with you because please just go across to Spotify and check out those two albums, Necroticism and Heartwork, and of course a new one from Arch Enemy, Deceivers. It's all good stuff, but those early things that he did with Carcass, they really laid the groundwork, and I'll talk about why in this episode. So let's get to it. Here he is, Michael Amit. Michael, I can hear you. How are you? Cool. I'm great. How are you? Good, good, yeah, great. Thanks, thanks for taking the time to join me, mate. I know it's uh, you're on the road, and these sort of things come up, and uh, you know I, they might feel like an obligation. They're really good for fans like me, though. You know, <laughs> hopefully not just you. There's some people listening as well at some point or reading or whatever this is for. Listening, yeah, I got a podcast, <laughs> so it'll yeah, pod, great, know, great, you, awesome. YouTube, all the rest of it. Yeah, it's uh, you're one of those guitarists. I've got to say that I've been looking forward to having a chat for some time. So that's awesome too. Uh oh. There we go. <laughs> I like that. Uh oh, I haven't had that response before. Actually, I had it once. I had it once when I was, I'm a bassist, if you can see me behind me. So I play guitar too, but uh, I'm an, I'll, I'll out myself now. I'm an old Carcass fan. So there you go. Uh oh. <laughs> Here we okay. go. No, that's cool, man. I appreciate it. I'm just, I'm just messing with you. All no, good. that's cool. Great. Well, well, We'll get to that. We'll get to that because I've got a few questions. I, I, I grilled Bill Steer, so you're next. <laughs> it's coming. Oh, shit. <laughs> well, we can let's kick off on that now. Why don't we do that now? I've long described Necroticism as being a perfect album, um, and I feel like Heartwork laid the platform for what heavy metal would sound like for decades. Now, when you were writing those albums, particularly Heartwork, did you feel like as though you were doing something that would be described as revolutionary? Yes. <laughs> Great. <laughs> right. So it did feel like um, as though you were doing I, something that was going to. I mean, it's a long time ago. So that's, I have to say that. 
but I do remember that it felt like the next uh, the next step. That's exactly what it was, particularly with heart work, because you can't. All modern metal has elements Something of that element. the sound. Are you hearing me? Okay. Yeah, I can hear you. Can you hear me? Hello, can you hear me? Hello. Can you hear me? Okay, mate. It kind of got a bit weird, the sound. Did you hear me okay? Yeah, I can hear you okay. There might be, I hope, I've got NBN, which is our version of fiber optic internet here, so I shouldn't have too many issues on my, we're going to do a speed test quickly just to see if there's some mm. sort of an issue, but hopefully there isn't. Um, oh, there might be a bit of an issue with mine. Oh, no, it's creeping up now. Yeah, it's going up to 80, 90 meg. Yeah, there you go. It just took a bit. All the kids, it's 4.30 here, you say, or well, 4.50, so all the kids are coming home from school. You know what they're like. They get on their Xboxes and stuff. <laughs> You know, but um, <laughs> if you, if you can hear me now, I mean, I just wanted to give you that feedback. That I mean, you you, re, you recorded. Uh, I understand you're in Arch Enemy. And you've been in Arch Enemy for the majority of your career. But those Carcass albums, they laid the platform. That's it. Uh, yeah, for sure, it was a huge deal. I mean, especially looking back at the time, we were just going through it, you know. And I was in the band for three years, I think. I did two albums and an EP with them, and a lot of touring and stuff like that. So those, that was in the early nineties. Really cool experience, and you know, I have them. I, th I thank them every time I meet them, and we have a few drinks. I always thank them for the opportunity because it was like, I mean, they needed a guitar player, and uh, but I, you know, it changed my life really as well. And they, I, I got a, I got the possibility to get, to get involved in the in the songwriting, which was very cool of them. You know, so it was a. Uh, and uh, to go back, you asked if it, we felt that it was a revolutionary death or something like you said on the yeah. artwork, right? I think we we were, that was a band that was a kind of a progressive band, actually. Carcass. I think that was the definition of true progressive metal because every album was completely different. There was a real progression there. So there was, you know, there was a the first album, and then the second album, and the third album that was I was on, and then the, the fourth album, Heartwork. I mean, those, those albums all sound really, really different. There's a huge leaf between between every album, right? Yeah. And they're all good in their own way, I think. So, uh, I mean, I remember writing when we were jamming on the, the, the hard work stuff, and I remember some things being totally new, like the like I presented like a little riff to uh, Bill, um, the harmony part. Is it this mortal coil? With this harmony part. So like and then we and then Bill added the the harmony on there and and uh you know we had this galloping drum beat and the it was just like I mean I I was I remember thinking at the time, and this is a strong memory I have, is that I've never heard anything like this in death metal before. Like it's like it's mixing, it's blending in like, you know. I made and type harmony and galloping yeah. beats with, and that had never been done before to my knowledge. And I was pretty deep into the, the death metal scene at that time. So I was remember thinking, I remember, do remember thinking like, this is going to be weird. Maybe people are going to hate it because it's not what people consider death metal, you know? <laughs> so, but, at the but then I didn't really think more. I don't think we were thinking that we were, I can't speak for the others, but I think, you know, we were just doing our thing and, it was kind of very free and open spirit in the band at the time. It was like very, you know, it was very uh, forward thinking in a way. It was great. Very, one yeah. of the best experiences, you know. 
Why did you end up leaving Carcass? What was the catalyst for your exit? Uh, a few different things. It all led up to that point, I guess, and uh, yeah, led me to that point. And I think one of them was that I wanted to do my own. I wanted to... I had contributed a lot more ideas to Heartwork than on the previous album, of course, but uh, I I don't know. I just felt like I wanted more control of the music, how it was going to be the end up being, you know, I wanted to be more in control, I guess. I wanted to run my own my own thing, which is what I've done since then. Mm. You mentioned progressive and yeah, absolutely. That's That's such a... People think of progressive and they think of yes and Jethro Tull and all that sort of stuff. But really, when progressive is just constant change and usually forward change, it's not repeating yourself and writing a no prayer for the dying, this sort of thing. But you and you and Bill, you're so progressive that you almost progress right out of heavy metal and into hard, like this this bluesy style hard rock. You have this inclination toward rock and blues, both of you do. So he he did Firebird and you, of course, you've got Spiritual Beggars. Now, is it conceivable to suggest that if Carcass kept going that the band may have evolved into a more bluesy enterprise? I don't think so, but I don't know. I mean, I wasn't there for the rest of it, you know. <laughs> I wasn't there for what happened after hard work, you know. And then, um, the, but I've heard a few, I have, I've heard most of Swan Song album, and I think it's, it has a bit more of a hard rock feel to it from what I remember. Uh, no? Yeah, they, yeah, they kept going. I can yeah, remember they, exactly. Yeah, it's, I, I would say yeah. it's not quite the masterpiece that Heartwork is, but it sort of hinted where the band would go. But, but fans by then, as you probably recall, fans were really nasty toward it. They were mean-spirited toward it. You know, the necroticism fans and the uh, decanting fans, the, these people um, didn't understand. But isn't it always like, it's, it's, it's always like that though, you know, it's like, I see that with Arch Enemy as well. We put out a new record or when we brought in a new singer or something like that and they said, no, bring back the old, we want the, just the way it was. And then, <laughs> and then by the time, then a few years pass, and then they, then another album that people complained about, that is now the legendary album. So it's like, you can't really, I don't really spend a lot of time listening to those kind of voices at all, really, because it's, uh, you know, I think everybody falls, it's, I mean, it goes for everybody, right? We fall in love with a, a band or a musician, uh, you know, the style, the music uh, at a certain age, there's a window where you get into something and then you want them to stay that exactly the same, just like that forever. And that's not really possible because we're all human beings and we grow and we develop and we we move forward, hopefully. Mm, yeah. I, I distinctly recall, I remember the moment when it was announced that uh, Angela or Angela was recruited as the band's vocalist. And the truth is none of us knew, meaning us, meaning us fans. We didn't even know that it was a female vocalist that was in the band based on the quality of the album. Did the mm. You were the first band, if I'm not mistaken, to recruit a female vocalist in extreme metal. I'm sure there are other lesser lights, but I'm talking about a touring band with an international fan mm. base that's selling tens mm -hmm. of thousands of albums. Was that... Mm -hmm. Was the fact that Angela was it strictly that she was the most appropriate person, vocal and as a as a vocalist and as a person that brought her into the band, or were you actually thinking along the lines of this is going to change the game? Let's bring in a female vocalist. Uh, it was the former more than the latter for sure. I mean, we, I, because it wasn't like you said, it wasn't a proven formula. It had not really been done before at that level. But nobody. Nobody thought it was a good idea, really, <laughs> you know, from that point of view. It was just like, 
he had this ripping voice and just like a really cool charisma on stage. And it was just like, yeah. And she was a total death metal freak, you know, so she'd grown up on her music roots were really like, you know, Carnage's Morbid Angel, Ball Thrower, you know, those kind of things, really, really heavy stuff. Hmm. And uh, uh, death, of course. Yeah. So, yeah, she was just really into it. And, uh, you know, she was a real, she was a perfect fit at that time, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Look, you are. And then everything else that came on top of that was just like the, the, the media attention. And that was something that we hadn't really. We, we thought it was okay. This is going to be eye catching, of course. You know, this is going to be cool. It's going to be set us apart. But we, we didn't, we weren't prepared for what was, you know, that kind of reaction that we got, which was insane. You know, so it was, uh, it was, yeah. you know, it was something new, something new for sure. I saw you guys in 2006 on Gigantour. Remember that when you came to Australia with uh, Megadeth? Of course, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. What are your memories of that? That show, the Brisbane show. I'll actually narrow your focus onto the Brisbane show. I thought it was fantastic. <laughs> I don't. Oh, the Brisbane <laughs> show. Yeah, it was with Soulfly. Was there? Correct. Yeah, that's and, it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I remember staying at. Uh, yeah, I remember everything. I mean, it was, that was a nice little tour. You know, we'd done the Megadeth. It was with Megadeth, uh, Gigantor, right? Yeah. So we done that in the states first, and then we joined, and then we followed on and did it in uh, Australia as well. A Soulfly joint, and I really enjoyed the Soulfly set as well. I remember, it was one of the few festivals that I've been to where I didn't think that there was a shit band on. To be honest, in terms of the performance, every mm -hmm. every band that was on put in an enormous performance. Uh, who was who else played? Caliban. Uh, oh gosh, I remember Caliban were the first band. They're a German band, I think. Caliban, uh, right? That's I've forgotten about that. But they were there. Yeah, um, I'm gonna have to dive into my. Uh, oh, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember, <laughs> I remember it really well, and I just remember your performance. Mm. There was uh, Caliban, Arch Enemy, Megadeth, and Soulfly. That was it. So there was really, I mean, it wasn't really a festival per se, but all three mm. really big mm. bands for the time, and Caliban yeah. were up and coming. Who sort of continued on a little bit, but just not quite got up to the status you guys have but that's uh that's all right that shit happens you know but there's there's another band that you've been a part of that i, I think gets glossed over in your history when you get asked questions because i've listened to a few of your interviews but were you a member of Candlemass, or were you just doing that album dactylus glomerata back in 1997 oh god uh that's a good question i was i don't know i mean i think I remember Leif Edling, the mastermind, you know, mm. the songwriter and founder of that band, of, of Candlemas. Uh, he called me. He was actually working for Swedish radio. Just, um, he was uh, working. He was like doing interviews for the music program stuff. Like that. Mm. So he'd interviewed me a couple of times uh, for another band I was doing at the time uh, back then, and then uh, in the mid nineties or whatever. And then he actually called me one day and asked if. I wanted to play with him on his uh, on his album, and he knew I was a big Candlemas fan. And from back in the eighties, I used to follow him around and see them live. And I was a big, you know, really into that sound that they had back then. And uh, I think the, the Candlemas had been sort of disbanded for a while, for a few years at that point. And he had another band called Abstract Algebra at the time and i think this was supposed to be the second abstract algebra album 
they recorded it once and failed at that or something like that. Something had happened. He wasn't happy with the production. He wanted to redo the songs, add a few more new songs and uh, re-record the whole thing. And he wanted me to play guitar on it. Mm. So, of course, that was super exciting. So I, um, it's an offer I couldn't refuse, actually. That's one of the few times I've actually gone in and played somebody else's music, apart mm. from Carcass, of course. Other than that, it's always been, I've always done my own thing, really. So I'm not, I'm never being like a session guy or anything like that. But this was one of, I think, you know, he wanted my style and he wanted my sound and that's what he got. So. Did Leffy, did he? So, well, did he... I don't know. We never, we never, I, we never played live with that lineup, oh. the particular lineup. So I wouldn't say I was ever in Canada, no. But so, I did play on that record, that's true. <laughs> yeah, it's out there, yeah. Uh Killer sound. It's. I mean, it's all there. It's. It's a, a Candlemaster sound has evolved through that period. There's no question. But w- was there discussions? You know, you get to your fifth or sixth beer, this sort of thing. Was there discussions between you and Leffy about maybe this partnership continuing on, where you're actually writing material for Candlemas? Uh, no, I mean, he writes all the music and lyrics in that band. Yeah. It's done on every album, I believe. So this, we've never. It's not a very collaborative effort in that way, you know. It's more just like play like this. No, not like that. More like this. So it was like you know, I was just doing what he told me to do, which is fine. I enjoyed it. You know, it was just very brief. I just recorded guitars. Like I think I was up in Stockholm for like a couple of weekends and drank a lot, partied a lot. You know, we were both single at the time and <laughs> had a lot of fun. And then um, you know, I hung over in the studio recording guitars. That's, uh, that's I enjoyed it. It was fun. Yeah, it's great. It's uh, really, really cool. Yeah. I've lost touch with him though, so I haven't talked to him in a long time. But you Love, know, I'm still a big fan. Yeah. yeah, he's great. He's really great. We were pretty close there for a while, and uh, I continued to like. You know, he'd come down and visit me. Or I went up and visited him. You know, and stuff like that. So we hung out in a private, you know, sort of way. You know, just chilling and and partying. It was a good time. Yeah, but yeah, he doesn't really collaborate in that way musically with people. As far as I know, I could be wrong. But that's what makes him great. You know, he's one of the most underrated uh, Swedish musicians. I think or songwriters, I should call him maybe uh, in the metal scene, you know, because he's just created so many great songs and melodies and stuff like that, and lyrics are too. Very yeah. great musician. Yeah, I think I think Marcus yeah. did a good job with him. Marcus Shadell did a great job with him for a bit. But yeah, to your point, he sort of goes through the musicians, but that's because he's got a vision and he's trying to stick to it and find people that'll uh, help him execute on that. And so so be it. But um, he, he's another fella from your past that I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on. But uh, I was talking to Bjorn from In Flames just this morning, and I asked him the same question. Okay, about his impressions. You're talking of- to everybody, aren't you? You talk to everybody. Yeah, I try. I try. I've, you should see my bucket list, Michael. It's it's enormous. You've been on it for a long time. I write books. I write books about what I'm doing here too. So you'll be in the next one. So uh, it'll be good. Don't worry. But uh, <laughs> I love talk. I love talking to you guys because it's just been a lifelong hobby, passion. You know this sort of thing. Um, I'm mm-hmm. not really. It might sound weird. I'm not really a metalhead though. I don't look at. You can probably see my photo and stuff. I don't look like it either. I just get really interested in talking and diving into the mm-hmm. early the '90s. Remember the '90s when we didn't have the internet. And you had to buy the albums, and you had to focus on the albums, and read the liner notes, and buy the magazines. That's that's where I come from. Uh, that's yeah, sort of, of course. Thing. Yeah. But the, the question was was uh, Frederick Nordstrom. Okay, so Bjorn did a lot of work with him early on, and you you guys did uh, four albums. Arch Enemy did four albums with Frederick. So, how important was mm. he to the band's evolution? 
Really great. We did the first three, of course, and then the first the uh, Wages Sale was recorded with him, but then mixed with Andy Sneap in the UK. Then we went back and did actually a fifth record with uh, for Rise of the Tyrant with uh, Frederick as well. So, and then I've, I had another band called Spiritual Beggars, and we did like uh, four of or five albums great with them band. as well. So I've done yeah. a lot. Of, I've, done, I've done a lot of albums with. Uh, <laughs> I've done ten records with with Frederick over the years. But it's, it's become less and less. So we haven't worked together for a long time. I did go back and do a couple of tracks for a project called uh, that I called Black Earth. That uh, we did. Uh, it was like the old Arch Enemy lineup from the nineties, mm. and we did two new songs for Japan for a tour that we we're doing in two thousand nineteen. That was fun. We mixed. I mixed those with Frederick in his new studio. Frederick is a really interesting guy. You know, he was just. Um, he just kind of came up on my radar, you know, like for everybody else, you know, with Slaughter of the Soul and uh, By at the Gates and uh, the yeah. early Inflamed stuff, especially Inflamed, like the Subterranean, uh, I think it was Subterranean, like a mini C mini album. Yeah, the AP. Um, yeah. 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 And I snatched the drummer from the, the two good songs on that. That's Daniel Erlandson on the drums there. So I snatched that. Sorry. I picked up him <laughs> and then he was only like 18 or 19. And then, and then, uh, where the hell is this recorder? I checked, oh shit, it's that, it's that studio in Gothenburg. I want to go there, I want to record there. So that's what we did, uh, Black Earth. And I remember showing up, you know, for recording Black Earth with Daniel and and uh, we tracked those. That album, first album, Black Earth, was recorded and mixed, I think, in nine days. Hmm. Completed. So that was like a very fast thing. But it was great. You know, it's just a, he, he was at the time, he was a very wild guy, you know. We drank a lot. We just record a lot and then go out and eat and party and then go over to the studio whenever. I just, I didn't have money for a hotel or anything. I just slept on the couch in the studio <laughs> or stuff like You know, it's just, a, yeah. it was just like, you know, that kind of vibe, you know, his early days, humble beginnings. It was great, you know, and I felt I was, there was a lot of excitement. You know, I had been away from extreme metal after quitting Carcass in 93. So for me to come back in 95, at the end of 95, I was recording this. It felt like forever because I was still pretty young at the time. So it felt like I've been away from it forever. And uh, it was just super exciting to get back into that atmosphere and to, you know, Frederick really helped me shape that sound and put it together, you know. So he was a really important person for Arch Enemy in the beginning. We went back there a few times. So. Mm. But then, like everything, you know, the relation we're recording relationships, you know, the relationship between producer or producer and engineer and and band, you know, it gets after a while. You think, ah, oh, maybe we should try something new. Or, you know, we've done this. We're repeating ourselves because we found a formula in a way, you know. And then as the band, you're trying to break away from the formulas sometimes, you know, and you want to try something a little bit different to see. Well, that sounds like so that's when we started working with Andy Sneap in the UK. And then we did a few records with him and then we moved on to other people and stuff like that. We just basically produce the sluts. No, oh, it's worked. There's no doubt about that. You're many, many albums in. And look, given you, so you started the band way back in the day in the mid 90s. So, I understand. I could be wrong here, okay, but just listening to your interviews, it sounds like as though you started the band as a "let's just see what happens" type of deal. But because, because realistically, yeah. I, I, I like Spiritual Beggars, great band. Realistically, you were well down the classic rock path. You were two albums in, and your third one was on the horizon when Arch Enemy came out. So, mm -hmm. was Spiritual mm -hmm. Beggars meant to be the band that 
you were potentially going to focus on. And does Arch Enemy a bit of a super group? I know it's been described as a super group, not by you, I don't think, but just a side project thing. <laughs> but then it just started to take off and you went, well, this is just where I'm going now. Well, for, and you know, when I started, when we did the Black Earth album, the first uh, Arch Enemy album, yeah, it was very much a case of just like, yeah, let's see, let's see where this goes. And not really much happened in the beginning, to be honest. We put it out on a very underground label. There was not not a lot, not a lot of, um, you know, got some good reviews here and there, but not a lot happened really. You know, there wasn't like a big wave of success or anything. Hmm. Um, apart from Japan, they really picked up on it, and then you did. You got out licensed to a Japanese label, and they got put out there, and they they put like a big push behind it, and it did very very well. And we actually went over there and toured over there on the first album. And, and then that kind of energized us and gave us the motivation to make the second album. <laughs> and then we went back and toured in Japan again. And I was still just playing like a handful of shows in Europe. Nobody really talking much about Arch Enemy. We couldn't get tours really. Nobody wanted us. And then, because uh, this was the time, it was kind of a bad time for metal as well. It's all yeah. about rap metal, industrial metal. Uh, those kind of fusions were going on at the time, you know. That's all gone now, of course, but you know, in new metal and all that kind of stuff. There's more, more natural, like people who do interviews, I remember for America or Europe, and they'd ask why we have so many guitar solos. And it would have been more natural if we had like a guy on the wow. turntable or something, you know what I mean? So it's just, um, it's kind of a weird time. So I'm just, I just followed my, uh, I followed on from what I'd done previously in practice, which is stay, I stayed within that form mat maybe, but you know, I, I even more melodic maybe in the guitar side of things and mm. even more solos and stuff like that. So I just follow what I like, you know, I don't really definitely didn't see Arch Enemy becoming like a, a big career band or anything like that at the time. It was just more, you know, just really being into it, loving that kind of music and having fun making it. Then, uh, I was still doing Spiritual Beggars, of course, at the time. That was the bigger band at the time. We were touring with bands like Monster Magnet, Queens of the Stone Age. We did a lot of shows I made. And, um, so it was happening for that band. You know, there was a lot going on with Spiritual Beggars as well. And for a few years, I was flip-flopping between the two bands. You know, I was doing one. Recall, if I wasn't in the studio with one band, I was on tour with the other or vice versa. And, you know, so it was just crazy. I was always busy doing something in those years. Mm. Um, it was a very a lot of fun, you know. It's not sustainable in the long run, I guess. So you know, at the end of the, then the singer of Spiritual Vegas quit, and things kind of slowed down. We continued on to make records, but it kind of like didn't continue on such an intense schedule. And then mm. things started picking up with Arch Enemy, and there was more interest in that. So I just kind of okay, so I just followed <laughs> followed that path, you know, and became more serious with uh, with. Um, with Arch Enemy. Suddenly when Angela joined the band, it became more of a serious thing because then I thought she was from Germany and, you know, she was from another country and it's like, oh shit, she's committing to being in this band. We better make something of it. You know, <laughs> good take this seriously now. Um, uh, we started, then we started booking tours all around the world. And of course, with the impact that the Wages of Sin album had, it, it just blew up, you know, and it became a very, very, it's a huge step up for us and we got to tour in the, more in the States and around Europe and 
getting festivals and of course keeping the Japanese market as well. That actually got bigger, expanded. But um, yeah, that's when it released. That, I would say that's around the time that Arch Enemy became the, the touring monster that we became and still are. Hmm. You, you've been described as the eldest statesman of Swedish heavy metal, okay, which is a huge. Oh, no, I don't think so. I don't think so. Uh, <laughs> I mean, there, there's a whole, there's a, there's whole generations before me of uh, of metal people, Ingvar Malmsteen and you know, the Europe guys, and you know, there's a lot of hard rock and metal people that came before me from Sweden. Oh, no, look, no, no question but, yeah. about that. But the extreme metal thing—I yeah. mean, you I mean you're in Carcass, oh, yeah. okay? Yeah. Carcass almost didn't write the yeah. book, but they certainly sure. wrote the first few chapters. And this is a couple of years before Slaughter of the Soul came out, which is really the zeitgeist. Yeah. And then everything sort of yeah. slowed on after that. But if hard work didn't happen, I say, as I say, I've spoken to all these people and I've asked the questions, and nobody's denied that that hard work is really the genesis of what came after, that started there. Mm. So. Do you, do you feel, I mean, obviously you don't because of your response to the way that's framed my point there, but can you understand why some people will see you in that light, though? Of course, yeah. I mean, I do in a way. <laughs> but, uh, hmm. It's like a big, uh, yeah, but, you know, I, I enjoy, it's fun to look back, but, you know, I try not to look do too much because I think that's damaging to I'm more of a looking forward person, you know, living in the moment and also thinking about the next tour or the next album, you know what I mean? Mm. That kind of stuff. I'm looking forward to going to Australia <laughs> next week, you know, so I'm super excited about that. So, you know, it's just, I've, and I've really been very fortunate. I'm of, of the generation that I am. I'm very fortunate that I'm still super active. I'm more active than I've ever been as a, I get booked more. I get I get to play more shows than I've ever done in my life, you know. And this far into my career, you know, and then, then it's twenty seven years into Arch Enemy's career, hmm. so it's super exciting, you know. Maybe twenty eight years soon of Arch Enemy. So it's like you know, it's not really. I never expected that, but it's just the way things have turned out. I think for some people, some artists, some musicians, of course, their heyday was maybe in the early nineties or the mid nineties. And then since then, then sort of things calmed down a lot and not a lot happened or big things didn't really happen for them. So then you have the time and maybe if you go back into a normal job, a normal routine, you have more time, you have a different perspective, if you know what I mean. You can think more about what was going on then and how exciting that was. That was the time of their lives or whatever, you know. But I'm just kind of like, there's so many things that happen all the time in my life that I just keep... I don't have room for all the memories, you know. <laughs> I just yeah. move on to the next thing in a way, you know. I mean, it's, um, I've been very fortunate to have this uh, longevity, you know. Of course, it could all end tomorrow, but who knows? I've enjoyed it so far. Yeah, what a what a career. And, and another aspect of your career, the one person that seems to have been able to get Charlie D'Angelo to bloody settle down and play in the one band for longer than one or two albums. How, how did you manage that? Because he's, <laughs> he's famous for being in up to 17 bands at one time. Yeah, no, he's calmed down a lot with that, I think. But I think he was just really, at a certain point in the 90s, he was very much, he was very eager to play with more people try different things and stuff like that. But like I said, you know, around the way to the Sin album, we just made a big commitment, all of us. We said, this is it. No more standing, no more filling bass players, no more. You're either in or you're out, you know what I mean? And we made that decision. We 
and he stood by that, you know. So Arch Enemy has been his priority band since then. And for all of us, it has been. Yeah, I could I can see. Yeah, it's uh, it was really interesting to see that. I spoke when I spoke to Elisa a couple of years ago. I asked her what it was like playing with him because being a bassist, he's one of the guys, as you know. He's he's in Merciful Fate and King Diamond, and his bass lines are audible in a genre where they're often not. You can hear him playing, and you can certainly hear it live. That's where it shines. But um, the the live shows too. So you mentioned that you're coming down to Australia there next week, I think, or the week after. So you're in Indonesia, I think, at the moment. How do how does Australia stack up against the rest of the world in terms of fan reaction and response to the new album? Oh, it's been phenomenal. I mean, it really has. Uh, it's a very different way of putting out this new album. Was the fact that what, what, the Deceivers album actually came out in August last year, hmm. but on, upon the day of release, uh, we already had six new singles out. We had six songs off the album out as videos, as streaming singles and all that. So the, the you know, you could argue that people have already heard half the album, but also the, all those six songs were extremely popular with the fans and we could play them live and, and we could really shine a spotlight on each individual, on those singles, you know, and, and really, they really made their way into the live set list and the show and stuff. So, very cool. I mean, it's just been an exciting time, you know. I'm just, it's adapt or die really nowadays, isn't it really? You know, it keeps changing. Every, every time we put out a new album, it seems the the landscape has changed just a, li a little bit, you know. How you do things nowadays and how to, to get the music into the ears and hearts of the fans, you know, it keeps changing. And uh, we have a great team, you know, that support us working on that. You know, it's... Uh, Lucky to have great management, great label, and um, stuff like that, you know. Because I don't really keep track of all of that, you know. I don't know. I'm more focused on the creative part, and then, of course, I'm I'm involved on the business end to a certain degree. But really, my heart lies in, in creating the music, and I'm also involved in the, the production of it, and then also like the merchandise and the and the you know designing stuff and things like that. That's really what what I'm into. What I really enjoy. The business part of it is just the, uh, and the the the, with the strategies and the release strategies and stuff. Like that. It's just not something that I'm like. It's great to see other people do that and see it all come together. Yeah, well, you can you can fall down a deep hole with that one there if it's not your bag because it's that that social media marketing side of it for bands. Unless you've got the expertise that evidently Century Media and the big labels like that and Nuclear Blast can bring to the table, you. You're spending tens of thousands of dollars potentially for no reason if it's not targeted appropriately and the like. I wouldn't. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you said that. Actually, that you focus on what what you know and what your absolute strength is, because with a label like that behind you, it's just I see. Yeah, and it's also the time. You know, I don't want to kill my inspiration. You know, I'm and will, I'm still yeah. living my. I mean, in many ways, I'm still living my teenage fantasy. You know what I mean? I'm just I I just walk around and win a world full of my head and the clouds and we're full of riffs and metal you know i just think about stuff like that all day and that's my job and that's what people want me to do so i'm very very fortunate in that way you know my job is to wake up have coffee and start <laughs> playing guitar you know and that's great i play guitar for hours each and every day so i mean that's how cool is that that's kind of like unbelievable really isn't it and oh, it's the i dream. never thought that would be yeah yeah i mean i never thought that would be I always thought that the music that I, when I started playing this music, you know, 
and the music that I was interested in that I wanted to play when I was a young, young teenager, I never saw that as something as a potential career or something like that, because there was that kind of music that I was interested in playing was not popular. A lot of, a lot of times there was not even albums out with this kind of music, you know, it was before there were records, it would just be tapes and demos and live tapes and underground rehearsal, like rehearsal tapes of bands mm. from all over the world playing this extreme music. And that's what I was interested in. And then of course there were some established bands, but those was like small, you go and see these bands you think they were big, but there was nobody there. There'd be a hundred people there to see what you thought was an established band. It kind of made you realize like shit, this music isn't that popular, you know, it's like not a lot of people are into it. And, uh, but that all changed, you know, in the nineties. So it all kind of grew and it became more of a business, you know, and it became more of a, I wouldn't say mainstream, but there was a way to market and sort of spread the, that kind of underground metal and it became more of a, a scene for it. The scene became so much bigger, you know, and then, uh, I guess I saw that happening when I was in Caucus in the early nineties, you know, it just kind of like suddenly there will be thousands of people at certain shows, you know, it's like, wow, this is really, mm. this is really something, you know, it's just, uh, how did this happen? How can so many people be in one spot at the same time, really enjoying this level of noise, <laughs> mm. you know, this kind of level of extremity that we were doing. It was really interesting and to see it grow like that. And of course now it's, uh, nowadays, maybe people have expectations maybe if you start a band now if you're starting out now that it's going to leave some of that's going to be like a but you know what i mean there's an, i had no i had zero expectations of anything like this happening in my life i just thought that i always thought i would have a normal job and then i'll do music as a hobby you know but yeah, then it just turned out i've actually never been employed in my whole life properly employed so i've always done this so which is kind of crazy i never i never expected that god had a plan for you from day one from the sounds of things <laughs> more, more, more satan more the devil there mm. you go <laughs> hey i will i will ask you this question sorry if, have we got time for one more question or is, if you've you got to head off no drama yeah elisa okay she's a marketer's mm -hmm. dreamer i mean she looks like she should be on the front of cosmopolitan or Clio magazine you know those those magazines but she's she's a talent she's the real deal there's no question about that so was she the only one you considered to replace angela because they were bloody big shoes to fill weren't they weren't they yeah they were but you know what she brought her own shoes which was cool i thought you know she just kind of established herself fairly quickly as the new singer of the band and i think you know she's she's very talented and very creative and um very serious about her craft and I have a, a lot of respect for him. And, um, I think that's, we're very different, you know, people, they're very different people in this band and you know, we're all different in our own way, but we, what we do have in common is that we respect each other and, and what we all each bring to the, to the table, you know, to make our enemy work. Cause I think without, you know, the wheels would fall off. It was all down to one person. But it's actually not. It's a lot of people. There's a lot more that goes on behind the scenes than people might know. You know, <laughs> a lot yeah. of people think I'm like the sole mastermind behind the hut. I think maybe some people think that that's not true. You know, there's like, for example, Daniel is a huge, huge part of the band, much more than just a drummer, which is a phenomenal drummer. He's a world class drummer, but he's also responsible for a lot of other things in the group. You know, that uh, creatively yeah. and uh, on a on a more sort of administrative level. So, I mean, he's, 
a great asset and they all are, you know, every, every member is great. Like when it comes to the live set list, you know, that's Charlie's, he does the live set list. So if people have any complaints, go to him. Go. <laughs> <laughs> Blame, but yeah, throw, is he on stage left? I think he is, isn't he from memory? Yeah. Throw, throw your, uh, throw your, uh, your, your mid strength beers at the festivals are toward him. Not really, but yeah, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. No, that's cool. Yeah. Um, well, it's, I'll let you head off, mate. It's been a wonderful to finally chat with you. I, you know, I know you speak to hundreds of people through the year and you've got to press the flesh and do all these sort of things, but it is meaningful that you take the time out to have these sorts of chats and you share your perspective on things. Because I do, at, at my at my age now, I mean, I'm really intensely interested in the opinions that you have and um, the reasons why you started, why you keep going, and, you know, you've, you've eloquently answered what the future holds there throughout the conversation. So... You're one of the guys, Michael, there's no doubt about it. Without you, metal doesn't sound the way it does today, and I want you to know that. You know that metal did evolve, and it evolved through your – you're one of the people whose fingers that evolved through, so there you go. That's amazing, isn't it? Thank you. Hmm. Very kind words. You can just keep talking stuff like that. I'm feeling great <laughs> about myself right now. <laughs> not everybody gets this believe me I, sometimes i'm yeah, right? especially yeah I can, I'm, I'm not critical because it's not my job to do okay. that but i do i you know when when feedback and praise is, is worthy and i know the problem is michael and you oh, god help me here the metal media is so lowbrow i'm actually a journalist okay so that's what i do during the day-to-day and um, mm-hmm. so I'm trained is what I'm saying and trying to get to the bottom of things mm-hmm. is what I like to do. But a lot of the metal, mm-hmm. I do listen to some of your interviews and I'm like, have they even done any preparation for this? Do they know about your career and your history and what you've done and when you started and the fact that you you know, you, you, you grew up in two cultures effectively, even though it's all sort of pan-European these days. It's, uh, you know, do they mm-hmm. understand the, the perspective from where you're coming from? I just don't feel like people do the hard work, to be honest with you. So I, I try to make that my point of difference when I'm having a conversation. In some ways, I understand what you mean, and but you know, my career has been so long that I don't really blame. If somebody's like you know in their early twenties and I'm doing an interview, I'm fine to talk about the new Arch Enemy album, you know, mm. or but all the last ten years what we've done. But then um, this it goes so deep, you know. Sometimes I feel like I'm like a Dracula or somebody, you know, I've just kind of been there forever, you know, <laughs> throughout the eons, you know, and I've just done so many different things for such a long amount of time that I just don't really, so the fact that I'm still kind of current and people still enjoy, people still buy tickets and want to hear what I've got to say musically is just unbelievable to me. And I, I, I'm enjoying that as well, you know, so I, do, I can just enjoy every kind of um, chat that I have with people, you know, mm. I don't really... I don't really put the. I don't really feel that everybody has to know everything, my whole history in a way, you know. But it is cool. Once in a while, I talk to somebody like you, and then um, mm. that's awesome. Of course, it's really, it's really. Uh, that makes me think as well, you know, like uh, you know about things. That's cool. Yeah, well, a great career, a long career, a long may you continue to perform. I'm going to try to get to your gig here at the Tivoli. There's no doubt about that. So, um, I'll try to get out there. It's just hard, so hard to get out with kids and work, and I'm also, you know, playing music on the weekends and stuff as well. So, I've always got to check. And mm-hmm. usually, bands, gigs that I want to go to coincide with the gig that I'm playing at myself. So, um, but mate, if, I, if I'm there, I'm going to raise a beer in your honor, put it that way. <laughs> Sounds good. Thank you. Appreciate, no it. Yeah. appreciate the talk, appreciate the chat, appreciate the opportunity, and uh, yeah, take care, mate, and I'll talk to you soon.
What a fantastic conversation there. Like I mentioned in the introduction there, I felt like Michael was uh, prepared to give me some more time, but I had to jet off and take care of family stuff. All the parents out there, I'm sure, will understand. But uh, hopefully I have another conversation and we can reprise many of the topics and dive even deeper. Now, if you loved that chat, there are many more just like it over at scarsandguitars.com and if you like listening maybe you like reading because I've written a book click on the link in the banner on my website and you'll be taken to a marketplace a marketplace of your choice in fact and you can download a sample if you download the sample and you complete the purchase not only do I appreciate it but do hit me up because I want to thank you personally and I've got some more information to share with you about the book in the moment but before I do My name's Andrew McKay-Smith, and I'm the host of the Scars and Guitars podcast series. Until next time, it's a very goodbye for now. This is Eric Rutan of Cannibal Corpse. You are listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast with Andrew McKay-Smith. I've been the host of the Scars and Guitars podcast since 2017. The first musician I interviewed for the show was David Vincent from Morbid Angel, and things have just snowballed from there. In all... I've posted almost 650 podcast episodes featuring conversations with many of the leading lights of rock, heavy metal and beyond. It just got to a point where I thought, I need to write a book about all this, so that's exactly what I did. In Scars and Guitars Volume 1, you'll read a heap of deep reveals and commentary, such as Des Fafara talking about Cold Chamber and why the band will never return. You know, if you're a a band just starting out, you need to hear me. Do not start a band with partners. Yeah, wise words there. Sage advice, mate, for anybody. Don't ever, because I I can't go do Cold Chamber right now unless I get others involved. Phil Anselmo talks about the episode in his career, which gives him the greatest sense of accomplishment. I think the staying power of the the fans and the staying power of the... of the songs, you know, whether it's Pantera, Down, or Superjoint, the fans remember the songs. Alex Skolnick from Testament confirms that, yes, playing the guitar in Ozzy's band is anything but an ordinary gig. Will Silent Oz from Demu Borgir write a book? Pa from Sabaton gives advice to people who want to start a band. Look at the team around you, look at the bandmates. If, uh, if the guys want to be on the stage, then it's all cool. If the guys want to be backstage, then it's not going to be cool. Current and former members of Cradle of Filth discuss the band's seminal 90s material. Read about the reaction to George Lynch and Mark from Suicide Silence's comments when they throw shade at then-President Donald Trump. We have this idiotic monster, you know, this egotistical, self-aggrandizing, complete piece of shit in there I, I just i just can't understand how we've gotten to this place and yeah we kicked a hornet's nest with sepultura percussive overlord gene hoagland talks about recording with chuck Schuldiner. chuck was always um you know he was he was very you know very open-minded and and he was into having his his musicians that were playing with him just reach out for for the best stuff that they have. Phil Campbell from Motorhead discusses what it takes to get sober. John Five answers his critics who dismiss his tenure with Marilyn Manson. You know, my name is John Five and Manson gave me that name and um, I had some of the best years of my life in that band and and learned a lot. And we get the lowdown on Trey Zagtoth from those who would know, including his mother. 
All across Scars and Guitars Volume 1, there are moments of tension, relief, tragedy, exhilaration, and throughout it all, you'll obtain insight that I believe no one else has managed to obtain from many of your favourite artists. So treat yourself. Scars and Guitars Volume 1 is currently available as an ebook with a print edition on the horizon. Follow the links attached and download a sample. I'm sure you'll be compelled to read the whole book. <laughs>